Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And we're so happy you're joining us this week. Marianne will be interviewing Catherine Herman. But you said it's not pronounced that way. It's I, I'm not positive. I think it's Katrin because Katrin she's German. Herman. She is a scientist who's working to get animals out of laboratories. She's currently with the Center for Alternatives to Animal Testing at Johns Hopkins. And along with Kimberly, Jane edited in an extraordinary compilation, Animal Experimentation, Working Towards a Paradigm Change. I feel like we don't interview, do enough interviews about animal experimentation. And the horrors, well, you know, we're not going to focus on the horrors. We're going to focus on the paradigm change. So I was really excited about this interview. And on the bonus segment, we'll be hearing more of my conversation with Katrin. And as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get that link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast goes up. You can always, if, you, if you've if you lost that email, as, as I would have done, because as I said last week, I'm buried in email and I can't get out. But anyway, you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group, so not a problem. If you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. You're making me think of this article that I had edited and published on Kinder Beauty's blog, which was about whether China still tests cosmetics on animals. And there was this recent regulation called the Cosmetic Supervision and Administrative Regulation, or, or CSAR, and there's been a lot of confusion about what it means. So uh, we published an article on Kinder Beauty's blog over at kinderbeauty.com written by Erin Hill, who's from the Institute for In Vitro Sciences, as well as Christy Sullivan, who we've interviewed several times, who's the Vice President of Research Policy at Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and it basically talked about why China still tests on animals, how long they'll continue to, and like what the implications of this new regulation are. It was really interesting because it is really very complex. Yes, and and you know it's the kind of topic where it it's horrible. The facts are just horrible, and the regulations are complicated. So it's very easy to let oneself off the hook about knowing more about it. But I think the interview today brings a lot of clarity and a lot of hope. So that's cool. Yeah. And also as a special thank you to our flock and community, we're doing these Flock Friday Zoom calls at 4 p.m. Eastern time where we discuss some of the topics we're struggling with or want to know more about, or sometimes we really challenge ourselves and each other to like shift our thinking in a certain way if there's something going on in our lives, especially in the time of COVID and quarantine. And sometimes sometimes we just shoot the shit. Sometimes we do. And if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Before we get to the interview, uh, I just kind of wanted to check in in general with you because we're doing it with the Flock Friday group, and we're going around and checking in from time to time. But obviously, everyone is going through a lot of stuff. And I know you're going through a lot as well with having Rose be so ill and old right now. And your poison ivy that you mentioned the last couple of I weeks. still have it. I'm so sorry. That's I awful. won't say anything more about it. I know people are sick of hearing about it, but I still have it. That sucks. Hopefully it'll be gone by the time I see you because I don't want to get it from you. Thank you. That was very thoughtful. Yeah, no problem. No, I want you to not have it anymore, obviously. But I also don't want to like... 
if it's not if, if it's not gone by the time that that you're here, uh, you know, I'll be in a mental institution. I don't think they have those anymore. Well, they're 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 going to create one just for me. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, we've both been a little overloaded. I'm leaving soon, the end of next week, in fact. Yeah, you have been talking a lot about having really a lot on your plate and and understandably since you're in the midst of moving but there's you've been doing a lot of other things as well and I feel like you're super stressed out I on the other hand my schedule is relatively easy right now like I'm not teaching I'm not even close enough to my next semester where I will be teaching that I have to be planning my classes I I feel like I'm behind on social media. I'm behind on email, as I mentioned all the time. And I'm still completely stressed out. Like, like, I like I feel, I feel like I get up every day and work all day and I have no idea what it is that I do. That's sometimes like a compulsion that is almost beyond us. It's almost beyond like what is actually going on. But the way that we relate to the world is sort of, you know, blended together with, that sort of underlying stress. So yeah, I mean, it makes sense. They're, like I woke, I wake up every morning and I read the New York Times and I was reading it this morning and I was like, is this a horror movie? Because it like, it doesn't make, you know, it's a problem. But, you know, gratitude lists are this super buzzworthy thing. Like people say, oh, did you do your gratitude list? But it actually really does help. Like it helps me when I'm really feeling overwhelmed to reframe things a little bit. You always help me reframe things a little bit. Well, I'm having trouble helping myself reframe things. You know, sometimes I think radical changes are in order and I think that people undervalue the importance of radical changes. I, I've definitely gone a little extreme with radical changes in my life, but sometimes they help a lot. I mean, I have this huge radical change coming in less than two weeks now and I'm looking forward to how it'll shake things up. But uh, yeah, when I was a kid, I remember I would change all the furniture around in my bedroom. My mom would come in. I don't even know how I did it because I'm talking about like all the furniture, everything, like my bed. I had this chair, my desk, everything, all of my, uh, you know, decorations. My mom would come in a few hours later and everything would be in a different place. Uh, I think sometimes we need to change the furniture around. I'm not sure that changing the furniture around is going to fix things for me, but. I'll work on it. She's this kid. I, I'll probably throw my back out. I don't know about this. I don't think I'm alone here. I think that the you know the like the world the world is in you know a pretty uh, bizarre and frightening place between the pandemic, which you know as everybody who's listening who's not in the U.S. knows, we are mishandling it like in in bizarre ways, and so it's very frightening, and it's very frightening everywhere in the world. I mean. And then the political situation is terrifying. I think we all have a lot to be nervous about. I don't I think sometimes I I bury how much I am worried about the state of the world and think it's me. think it's my life that I'm not, you know, like if I don't, if I would only spend more time on this or more time on that, I would be calmer. But I don't think I think just realizing that helps me that that a lot of what's going on right now is completely out of my control. It's stressing me out. That's how it's going to be. And I just have to find ways to manage that stress. And one of the ways is just to face up to it. Like a lot, there's a lot going on right now in my life and in everyone's life that is not within our control. All we can do is to try to focus on what is in our control. 
Right. And that's why I think I used to change the furniture around so much because it was something I could control. But speaking of changing the furniture around, I did that the other day in, in packing. I had this shelf at the bottom of my closet that I would just keep some deep storage in. And I was moving it around and I heard this like pitiful meow. And it was my cat who was apparently (laughs) Stella, who was apparently in the little piece of furniture down there. And then she got all puffy and ran under something for like, oh, poor Stella. Cats don't like moving. That is not that that is not a cat thing. They would never move if it was up to them. That's what I wanted to, you know, make sure to mention that within the scope of quarantine and the scope of moving and the scope of stress that a really positive place for us to put our energy is into making life a little bit better for the littles as much as we can. And it, it allows us to take ourselves out of us. It allows us to focus on being present and being joyful and, you know, making their lives as comfortable as possible usually requires us to do the same. So that's like another perk and benefit of having animals, especially senior animals who are my very favorite animals to have. So I just wanted to throw that out there that I know Stella's feeling it. I know my dogs are feeling it, but that's why I need, I need to kind of show up for them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as everybody knows, cause I've mentioned it, Rose is very frail and she's actually been feeling a little better. You know, it comes and goes and she has her ups and downs, but but she isn't doing too badly. But I, I you know, I, I really take your point that taking care of her and which, you know, can be a little complicated because there's not that much she wants to do. But still, she likes to get out. She likes to do some sniffing. Uh, you know, she's still alive and and trying to make that happen for her. That's it's kind of the only thing that makes me happy is if I can, you know, bring her a little pleasure in the day. And I can get like all stressed out about all of this nonsense, which I don't even know what it is that I'm so stressed out about. And and just ignore her because she's easy to ignore because she just sleeps and whatever. And and it's a good reminder that yeah, taking care of the animals is not just for the animals. It's what it's what brings us joy. Yours need a lot of I mean the dogs, but especially the cat, because cats are particularly averse to to change. Uh, They would like everything to stay the same. But the dogs as well. Packing is a very, very stressful thing for animals. They know something's up. I know. The dogs are in for the adventure, though. Uh, But yes, I have have literally lost sleep about taking Stella, cat, on the RV. Of course, we're spending all the money we're spending specifically because of Stella. Because it just, you know, there's no other way right now for us to get her there that is safe for her, safe for everyone. So that way she can roam free a little bit in the RV. So I'll keep you And you said that you it. don't have to open the door to the outside. You can open the door to the... Yes. So you could open the door in the front where like the driver and the passenger sit. The part that takes you from the front to the actual like apartment part is closed off. You can unzip it and step through it. So we're just going to always yeah. leave it zipped up. Yeah, and so it's kind of two step process. Even if she got out, yeah, exactly. she would only be in the kitchen. Yeah, she you know, would just this be just reminds front. me of a story about Henry Spira. Henry Spira, the great animal activist, who you know he's he's been dead for for a number of years now, but just one of the most remarkable animal activists. And Peter Singer wrote a book about him. I was in his apartment once, and he had cats, 
And he had set up a whole foyer for the front door of his apartment that it, it required to go through you to go through a double door just because he wanted to make sure, you know, he had a cat who like darted out and he wanted to make sure that if his cat darted out, he couldn't get out into the hall. <laughs> I love that story. I also love that you were in Henry Spears' apartment. That's like one of the main- I love that too one of the many things that make you badass, you know, like I know how badass you are and other like old school animal activists would understand how cool that is. By the way, tiny little aside. uh, So we're selling our car out here. And the other day, this family came to look at the car, which is old, you know, super old, 2007. And this family came to look at it and they had their 16 year old daughter with them because the car was for her. And she had like a shaved head and she she was just like trying really hard to be, I mean, not a shaved head, like a crew cut. And she was trying really hard to be like, you know, cool. And so she gets out of the car and she was looking at it and it has a change the world for animals, go vegan, our hen house bumper sticker on the back of it. And she started literally jumping up and down with excitement. <laughs> like, I'm just assuming that she was vegan. I'm just going to make that assumption that she was vegan. She was super excited. And it's so funny because a couple of years ago, I sold another car, another old car that was mine. And it also came with that bumper sticker on it. So I think like my new campaign plan is to just get old cars and sell them with the Arhenaus go vegan. Apparently you can, you can up your price. If you have one of those, those bumper stickers on the back, who knew? Exactly. Our hen house here for all of your car needs since 2010. So our hen house has been supporting vegan businesses, especially the ones that need extra support right now. And so we're shouting out some of the vegan businesses on our radar. And we encourage you to go to our slash vegan businesses and fill out some of the ones that are on your radar. We are always going to make sure to include at least one black owned business. And so The first two today are amazing Black-owned vegan businesses owned by prominent women in the animal rights movement who often collaborate, Nyjah Wright-Brown and Brenda Sanders. Both restaurants are local to Baltimore. Their missions are so inspiring. The Land of Kush is the first one, and I've been there, so I'm just going to show off for a second because it's really great. And it's the ultimate vegan soul food experience in Baltimore, and it is vegan soul food since 2011. It's one of Baltimore's favorite restaurants. It has served people like Stevie Wonder and Angela Davis. And, and Jasmine Singer. It is owned by Chef. Right. That was on the list. There's a plaque when you go inside. It's owned by Chef Gregory Brown and just the incredible activist, Nigel Wright Brown, who is the co-creator of Vegan Soul Fest and Maryland Vegan Restaurant Week and the executive director of Black Vegetarian Society of Maryland. So you can subscribe to her YouTube channel, Nyjah Speaks, and it's N-A-I-J-H-A Speaks. And do you want to talk about Greener Kitchen? I do. I We've talked about Greener Kitchen before because it is uh, Brenda Sanders, one of Brenda Sanders' uh, many ventures. And, and of course, Brenda has been on the podcast a number of times. And it was originally started as Pep Foods, and it's a cooperative of Baltimore-based plant-based businesses. And it's focused on the goal of making healthy, affordable plant-based foods accessible to the people who need them most in Baltimore and beyond. And the Greener Kitchen believes that everyone deserves healthier plant-based food options that taste great. 
not just those who can afford to drive to expensive stores to purchase pricey foods. And in other words, simple words, they believe in food justice. And as a plant-based cooperative kitchen, vegan food distributor, deli, and caterer, their mission is to completely transform Baltimore's food landscape. And The Greener Kitchen is co-owned by, as I mentioned, food justice activist Brenda Sanders, who we absolutely love, who also co-founded Thrive Baltimore, a community center that offers classes and workshops that support people in living a healthier, more sustainable life. She's also the executive director of Afro Vegan Society and the co-creator of the Vegan Soul Fest, a festival that celebrates culture and vegan living. And we just love Brenda Sanders. You can find it at thegreenerkitchen.com. I actually recently became a subscriber to her Patreon because I'm I'm just a big fan of all she's doing. And you can actually see my interview with her for the Faces conference that aired last week that benefited Animal Place. If you look at facesummit.org. So final thing here is drtusk.com. World Elephant Day is, is on August 12th, which I guess just passed this past week. And there's this brand that's dedicated to saving and protecting elephant species. Dr. Tusk is a line of men's grooming products. But for the record, (laughs) I am really into men's grooming products. So gender schmender. This company dedicates 5% of all its profits to charitable partners who are directly involved in helping these majestic creatures. And they're hoping to make a large impact since their line is going to be available in Whole Foods stores nationally later this month, which is super cool. So anyway, Dr. Tusk is a super sustainable brand. It's dedicated to saving and protecting elephant species. And it gets the word out there too, which brings awareness to the estimated 100 African elephants killed each day by poachers who are seeking ivory and meat and body parts, leaving only 400,000 remaining total. And that's really a a hard number to wrap our heads around because as, as of 2020, there are still more African elephants being killed for ivory than are being born, meaning the populations are declining. So this is an elephant saving brand and it it has this launch coming up at Whole Foods, which is very exciting. And it has products such as hemp deodorant and all-in-one hair and body cleanser and three-in-one shave cream. Wow, they're very into being efficient. <laughs> uh, so I hope that people check out Dr. Tusk. I'm definitely going to. And I want to also check out your interview with Catherine Herman, who is a veterinarian and assistant scientist at the Center for Alternatives to Animal Testing at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore, which apparently is a big theme for... Today is a Baltimore episode, that's for sure. Yeah, seriously. But I said Catherine again. What, what was well, it I think again? it's Katrin. I, I'm not positive, but I think it's Katrin. I just think that's how you pronounce it in German. Okay, well, she, Katrin, is a diplomat of the European College of Animal Welfare and Behavioral Medicine, and for almost a decade worked as a federal inspector of animal experimentation in Germany, where she saw firsthand the shortcomings of animal protection laws. Along with Kimberly Jane, she has now compiled and edited a book project, Animal Experimentation, Working Towards a Paradigm Change, in which 51 experts highlight the problems associated with animal use in science and show ways to work toward that paradigm change. And Katrin will be joining Marianne right after this. We're excited to announce Encompass Essays, Pursuing Racial Equity in Animal Advocacy, a collection of essays written by farmed animal protection advocates who are committed to exploring and prioritizing racial diversity, equity, and inclusion 
as we work to create a more just animal protection movement. The essayists contributing to this virtual anthology were all attendees of the 2020 inaugural Encompass DEI Institute, a virtual training for farmed animal protection advocates, which was originally held in February 2020. Our hen house was a proud sponsor. The authors, myself included, are a group of advocates who wish to document our stories and processes in an exploratory space from which we can grow. And we'd like to hold ourselves and our peers accountable and create new ways forward. Encompass, the nonprofit that organized the Institute, aims to make the farmed animal protection space more equitable by working with organizations to operationalize racial equity and with individual advocates of the global majority by helping them cultivate their leadership potential. Encompass Essays is a collaboration between our henhouse, Encompass, and Sentient Media. I am lucky enough to be the editor of the essay collection. The only way to be an effective animal activist is to centralize anti-racism around our advocacy, which requires a deep dive into the ways white animal advocates have historically used our white silence and white apathy to ensure that the animal rights movement has been centered around a white supremacist culture. We need to change that. This essay collection will provide a new, necessary way forward, one in which we can be held accountable for centering our anti-racism in the fight to end the exploitation of animals. Sentient Media, where these essays will roll out throughout 2020, is a robust digital platform that reports on animal agriculture and its impact on the world, as well as fosters a writer's fellowship program where newer journalists are mentored by seasoned ones. Beyond the digital presence for Encompass Essays, which includes plans for audio versions of the essays, which will air on the Our Hen House podcast next year, Lantern Books will be publishing an anthology version of the collection in both hard copy and digital form. The book is set to be released in late 2021. Down the road, we will parlay the work of the collection into a springboard for digital panels, collaborative discussions, and hands-on trainings. Additionally, the hope is that this is the beginning of a three-part series where the authors will revisit our anti-racist work and provide updates to be published in future follow-up collections. Learn more about Encompass Essays, Pursuing Racial Equity in Animal Advocacy by visiting sentientmedia.org slash encompass essays. Again, it's sentientmedia.org slash encompass essays. Welcome to our hen house, Katrin. Hi, thanks for having me. It is such a pleasure to have you. And I, I want everybody to know that I saw you speak, it must be two years ago now, at a conference at Princeton on effective altruism. And I was very struck by your remarks. And I do want to I do want to talk about that, but not I don't want to start off with that. At the time, I really wanted you to come onto the podcast and we couldn't put it together. And one thing there was this and that. And I'm so glad we waited. Because now you and uh, your co-editor, Kimberly Jane, have come out with this book, which is amazing. It's a really, <laughs> really comprehensive collection called Animal Experimentation, Working Towards a Paradigm Change. So I get to talk to you about that. This is a big project. What motivated you to put this collection together? The background story for that, that is that I used to be a regulator, a federal regulator for animal experimentation in Germany. And so my job entailed the assessment of research proposals, animal research proposals. I also had to do inspections in animal laboratories and breeding facilities. 
And I also had to look at animal experiments uh, while they were conducted. My experience I gathered over the years me that the public needs to be informed more and in more detail about what's actually happening in uh, research laboratories. Well, this this book has a lot of information in it and we can't we can't possibly cover everything that's in there, but can you just give an, an overview of what people would find there if they pick it up? It has 28 chapters and this really comprehensive actually 51 people contributed to the book. They have various backgrounds, all are international contributors. And the idea was to show what is actually happening in research labs, how research is conducted currently, what are the problems, what are the, are the shortcomings of animal experimentation. Then we also discussed the ethics um, of animal experiments and we discussed alternatives to animal experiments, um, what uh, non-animal human biology-based approaches are out there that can be used to move away from animal use in science. So that's why it got such a comprehensive book, because we had so many voices and we tried to write it in a style that everybody can understand. We tried to explain all the medical terms. The general public that is interested can really get a good idea about what's happening in research because it's an area that's not very transparent. And it's really hard to get information on what's actually happening in those labs. And we thought that was really important to have then a suicidal discussion about what we actually want. Because one thing we must not forget, we as a society, this research is done for us. And we are mostly paying for it as well with our tax uh, money. And so it's very important not to forget that and use this opportunity to get involved and stand up for those animals and also question how funds are distributed. What kind of research do we actually want? I can say a little bit more later, maybe because you differentiate various areas. So there's uh, regulatory testing. That's many animal tests are still required by law. That's one area, toxicity testing. And then there is the area of biomedical research. And there you divide it into basic research and translational research. Basic research is more curiosity-driven. It doesn't mean that it needs to be applicable and help improve human health care. And so just for the listeners to know, when you look at uh, statistics, you actually see that a lot of research is conducted in the field of basic research. And that's something I think we as a society need to discuss if we agree with that and how we want to go about it. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I think a lot of people like me, lay people, tend to think of, of animal research as kind of this direct line from a problem, a human disease, to a cure. But that's, as you say, in basic research, that's not what's going on. And I do appreciate that this book is written for interested and sophisticated people. It's not an easy read, but it, like so much science is incomprehensible to the rest of us that this has been an, an area that it's very hard to argue about. We just feel at sea. And at least this is written in a way that, that everyone can understand it with some of the articles that you have to put a little work in. But uh, I think that's hugely, hugely important because this is an issue that needs to get more public understanding around it. You, of course, wrote the first chapter in the book. In it, you focus on the three R's, which I think people have heard of, but I would like you to go into them because they might not know exactly what they are. And specifically on the third of the third of the three R's, which I 
I've, I've heard these words, but I've never really focused on what they mean specifically. Can you give us a brief definition of the three R's and how, tell us how they came to be? They're really the basics, of, as, I, as far as I can tell, about how scientists talk about the ethics of animal use. And, you know, they were a step forward, but there are a lot of problems, if I understand. Yeah, so the three R's of animal experimentation, the three R's stand for replacement, reduction, and refinement of animal experimentation. And the principles were first described by the two British scientists, Russell and Birch, in 1959, so over 60 years ago. So last year, they had actually their 60th anniversary um, of the book they had written, The Principles of Humane Experimental Technique, is the book called. And the idea was to make science more humane and to try to really avoid uh, the use of animals wherever possible. So to replace animals by non-animal methods, by animal-free methods. And then if that wasn't possible, to reduce uh, the numbers of animal use and to refine the experiments. Refinement in this sense means that you try to reduce the suffering of the animals in the experiment. And later this was expanded also to the husbandry um, of the animals. So the whole lifespan of the animal should be refined in that way that they don't suffer needless pain, distress, um, anxiety, and so on. Those are the principles, and actually in many countries around the world, these principles are now embedded in the law. For example, in Europe, we have the European Directive uh, 2010-63 that actually even has the end goal of not using live animals anymore. It's the end goal, and it's definitely something worthwhile to have that in the law because it's pretty, let's say, radical compared to, to other legislations. In the U.S., for example, you don't find the three R's in, written in the law. The only R you might find when you can see that it's in there is R of refinement because they say that you should reduce pain, distress, and so forth of animals in the experiments. But yeah, that's the three R's principle. I also think that it's after 60 years, it's really time to move beyond the three R's and actually really focus on human-relevant research. And when I talk about human-relevant research, I talk about methods that are based on human biology rather than on animal biology. So in vitro tests that use human cell lines, for example, or organs on chips that are based on stem cells that are derived from humans, obviously, and not from other animals, to make that clear. It's actually... It's still our research paradigm to use animals, but I think we need really a shift away from that in the way we conduct science. That's very important. And that's also the very difficult part. It reminds me so much, particularly speaking about refinement, of what's going on with agriculture. And refinement is kind of like high welfare farms. If you do high welfare, with real significant standards, it's really hard and it's really expensive. So then refinement ends up, as, as far as I can be, kind of lip service. Well, some weak measures, I guess, depending on the lab, some weak measures to like basically just lip service because it's hard and, and it's expensive to treat animals well, as, just as it is on farms. Can you give us some examples of the types of things you mentioned that this applies not just to uh, the experiments themselves, but to the types of things that could be provided to animals in labs in regard to, say, housing and general care that would make their lives better that perhaps are not being done in too many instances. 
Yeah, so there are a number of things, and I totally agree it's the same in the farm animal industry. So for laboratory animals, there's actually a lot of data out there on how to refine and actually environmentally enrich their environment. So environmental enrichment is one of the buzzwords here. One thing that's not even standard practice, unfortunately, in the U.S. is um, that social animals should be socially housed. This seems to be a no-brainer, obviously, if an animal is a social being that wants to be with their friends or um, family. But that's not the case sometimes in laboratories, that their animals are single-housed. Often it's um, argued that it's uh, necessary for scientific reasons, but there are ways around that to still make it possible for them to be together. Obviously, space is another huge issue and how how exciting the environment is. What you find in the standard husbandry is far, like very far away from what you find um, in the natural habitat of all those species that are used um, in research. And so they suffer psychological problems. They may develop stereotypical behaviors and that's a huge problem because that's a welfare issue, of course. It compromises uh, the animal's welfare. And the other thing is you can also imagine that this has an impact on the validity of the results obtained from experiments with these animals. That's a particularly compelling argument, I think, for a lot of people. You talk also about this, this catchphrase, the culture of care, which is how this has been put into practice. And I, I noted particularly, and this is a little bit different in the analogy to the farm animals, perhaps, but it must be hard to both carry in your head this idea that you're supposed to care for these animals and then experiment on them. It's almost asking too much of people. Like, people can't do both of those things at the same time. If I was going to experiment on animals, the last thing I would want to do is care about them. I, I think it works against human nature almost. But you mentioned, too, that this is not just the conditions in which they live, but the experiments themselves, and that some of these issues can interfere with the results of the experiments. Can you talk about a little bit about that and, and why animal research goes wrong? Yeah, so what you said about the culture of care, I find this is more, in my experience so far, it seems to be more like a whitewashing strategy, make it look better, because I have not seen much of a culture of care from what I have seen uh, in different labs and in various countries, not only in Germany, I can see this culture of care. And I think it is hard, as you say, I think to be uh, an animal caretaker uh, or technician in an animal laboratory is really hard for those people emotionally. And I guess there are different coping mechanisms to deal with this. One big thing is compassion fatigue that has been discussed a lot. It is definitely a really difficult task. Um, I wonder how people are actually doing it. What is interesting, what I saw in my inspections is um, that it does make a huge difference, obviously, as, if the individual caretaker cares for those animals beyond what is uh, legally required. I saw huge differences in even between different rooms in the same institution depending on who the caretaker was and how um, ambitious they were in providing the animals with as much environmental enrichment. For example, for mice, it's a nesting material in sufficient amounts or little huts or tunnels for rats, things like that, or just entertaining and also yeah, interacting with these animals. There's another thing that 
is described, but I don't think it's done a lot in practice, but it's been researched on, that is positive reinforcement training that you try to train, for example, monkeys that they um, give their arm so you can draw blood and then they get a treat for that. So certain procedures that you have to do on these animals become easier and less distressing for the animal because, yeah, as we said before, it all has an influence on the research results to try, of course, to mitigate all those influences. In terms of refinement methods during the experiments, I wrote a whole PhD thesis on that topic. And what I did, I assessed over 500 animal research proposals from all around Germany. And I looked at what did they do in terms of pain alleviation, in terms of anesthesia, in terms of human, so-called humane endpoints. That means when an animal suffers more than it has been expected to, you take the animal out of the experiment earlier. Normally they get killed then prematurely to avoid extra suffering. Also, I looked at the killing methods because those can be distressing or more distressing, things like that. Also, the monitoring during the experiment, obviously, when animals are in pain and they are not monitored frequently, you miss that and you don't uh, act upon this. So I looked at all those things and I saw that there is room for a lot of improvement. In Germany, refinement is required by law. So those Animal researchers should have done that. They should have known that. They should have put that in the proposal. And so that kind of shows that there must be a lack of education and training, a lack of awareness. Because another thing I did, I also looked at the severity of the procedures and there are different so-called pain catalogs you can use to get an idea how distressing and painful certain procedures are. And um, I compared those pain catalogs with the estimate of the researcher because obviously it was uh, done um, before the experiment. So they just get, gave an estimate what they expect. And I saw that in over 60% of the cases, the researchers underestimated the intensity of the procedure. The severity classification was too low. So that also shows, okay, if you're not aware of how painful certain procedures are, it's not surprising that then they don't provide adequate pain relief. As you mentioned before, for us, the most compelling issue here is the suffering that these animals are going through. But it also, it's just bad science, right? Like, the, like you mentioned that, that just a difference in a caretaker and the different ways they treat the animals can can have a difference in the outcome of an experiment. But there are so many other sources of ways that, that experiments can go wrong and that they do go wrong because of the way the animals are treated. And I noted the one story you told about sepsis research in mice, which I thought was really compelling. Can you just use that as an example to show how much of this research goes completely wrong? Yeah, so the other problem, because obviously, so we know that all those stressors, uh, those animals are exposed to in, in their laboratory environment, which is very far away from their normal environment. You know, it has nothing to do with it. And of course, um, inadequate handling, um, inadequate procedures and so on. They all have an impact on the animal. The other thing is that for a translational or applied research, we assume or we have that assumption that, okay, we, we use a so-called animal model called an animal disease model. 
And we want to then extrapolate uh, the data that we generated in, in these animals to the human setting. Of course, um, this is very difficult. In some cases, of course, we have been successful. We can't say that uh, we have never learned anything from animal experiments and it has never furthered uh, human health care. Here we have to just ask what are we willing to accept in terms of ethics, but that's another topic we can talk about later. But in terms of those so-called animal models, we have more and more evidence um, when we retrospectively assess a certain the, the validity of certain models, for example, sepsis mouse models, uh, we realize that their, their translation is just not possible because the animal acts very differently from, from the human. So that is kind of the problem here. And that is something that, for example, for sometimes we have 20 years of research with certain animal models, and then we realize, okay, we can't, there's no way to improve this model because it's just not translatable. For example, because the genes that are switched on and off are very different in mouse and man or something like that, you know. And then, of course, we have a, um, an area of so-called animal models that we don't we, for example, Alzheimer is a good example there. We don't even understand Alzheimer. It's a multifactorial chronic disease that takes decades to develop. And we don't understand how it develops. And still we think we can use animals to mimic some of the symptoms and then get some information from that. And yeah, for example, Alzheimer is an area where you can say there's a 0% um, success rate in terms of developing any drugs that uh, improve the situation of Alzheimer patients. And there's a, a whole um, number of other animal models where it's the same. You know, when it's a, it's a complex multifactorial um, disease that we don't understand, uh, it is impossible to model this in other animals. Yeah, and I, I do want to get into the interactions between the ethics and, and the bad science, but I just want to no, like, I don't think this is how lay people think of science. They think that science is, you know, based on, based on real, real assumptions about the world that are then proven. But you really talk about a culture which is stuck in, in a kind of a really unscientific attitude about, uh, to just keep doing what we've always done. Is, is that true? Yeah, so there are certainly some issues. Um, like a few weeks ago, we had a summer school on innovative science without animals at uh, Johns Hopkins University that we co-hosted together with uh, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and the Joint Research Center of the European Commission and uh, my Center for Alternatives to Animal Testing at Johns Hopkins University. And actually, I gave a talk with a colleague uh, from the JRC, from the Joint Research Center, Dr. Pistolato, and we discussed exactly that question. Is there still a place for animal experimentation in the 21st century science? Then we went through some key questions. But one, one thing I also wanted to discuss there with the students, because it was a young audience, students and early career scientists, was the problem that, okay, we have more and more evidence that Many animal models fail to be predictive uh, for what's happening in the human. Um, the drug failure rates are about 90%. We have even repro reproducibility issues. You might have heard about the reproducibility crisis. That just means that you reproduce an experiment in the same species. So obviously, if 
if you can't even reproduce that, 50 to 90% of experiments can't be reproduced. How can you translate it to another species uh, in, in most of the cases, us? So we have huge issues. And um, I kind of tried to explain to the students why that is. And also, we also talked about how the animal research industry depicts itself to the public. Because when you, when you read, you know, when you read about it online, it sounds like it's so essential and you can't question anything about it. But there are actually some psychological tendencies that help, um, uh, do that because there's something called psycho, uh, institutional and psychological lock-in. And then we have, I'm sure you have heard about um, confirmation bias, um, cognitive dissonance and motivated reasoning. And when those are combined, they lead to ignorance. And of course, this is then ultimately impeding scientific progress. So the, the problem is that, um, yeah, there, you can also talk about so-called uh, thought cultures. Uh, Professor Gluck speaks about this topic a little bit in the afterword of our book. It's, it's really interesting to see that because we basically don't want anybody to scrutinize um, what we see as normal science and anything that could question that uh, is dismissed. And so it's really difficult um, to make change in this area. It's, it's kind of astonishing, yeah, because you would think that Science is evidence and not opinion, but we must not forget that science is a social experiment, kind of, and it is influenced by a psychological and social... Um, that comes through so clearly. And yet, you had recommended um, John Gluck's article to me, which, yes, was very compelling on this. And of course, he has been on the podcast for people who want to go look him up. It was amazing. And you also recommended this other article by Ariana Ferrari. And I think it's important to come back to that because we said we were going to come back to the ethical argument because she makes the point that the scientific arguments alone are not going to get us there. And maybe the ethical arguments alone aren't going to get us there, but we do need them both. Yes. Yes. I, this, this article also really resonated with me because she shows the weaknesses of both the just the ethical critique and just the epistemic critique. What she actually asks for, because of obviously, as I said before, we cannot, so the, the epistemic critique is normally that we are conducting poor science or we are doing poor science by using so-called animal models. But as you know, I mean, we have learned from animals and it also has furthered uh, human health care. I think besides that, of course, now we have diff more difficult uh, problems to tackle and uh, those multifactorial diseases that are very much influenced by the environment and environmental toxins and also by our lifestyle can never be modeled in other animals. So that is her one uh, one critique. She says, of course, it's it's important to retrospectively assess, uh, continue to retrospectively assess animal research and look at the validity, the internal external validity. In, in this case, it must be also external uh, valid. So you can actually um, learn something for, for the human setting from that. Yeah. So, so she basically says, okay, we can't just um, critique 
animal models from a scientific perspective because there are certain benefits from doing certain animal experiments. And then she also says, okay, in terms of um, ethics, it is, it is, you know, it's very hard to, I would say it's very hard from a, like ethical standpoint to critique because we have so many different ethical opinions. So what she proposes is a um, political critique. And there she makes this very, very important point that actually um, society is the one that should, you know, discuss the topic and say, okay, what, what are we willing to accept? What are we willing to accept? Is it, is it worth all this animal suffering or abuse? Can we benefit from animal abuse? And how do we want to treat other sentient beings? Those are key questions. And I would say that, that our society is ethically evolving. And so it's really important that time and time again, we review what is actually done in, in science and with animals in science and have a political discussion about it on a political level, because otherwise it's not going to be successful. I just note that my students, you know, I teach animal law. And so my students are coming from, you know, not scientific backgrounds. And nine times out of 10, they're always willing to get rid of experimentation on animals. They're not willing to give up eating them. It's so bizarre because it seems like experimentation is the hot topic. You know, the, the difficult one, the one that really requires the most debate. But you bring this question to the public and you get very different answers. Actually, there was a recent uh, survey conducted in the European Union that actually showed that about 75% of EU citizens really want that uh, more is, been, uh, is going to be done to replace animals in science. So I thought that was really interesting. There is a new, a very new survey just uh, just came out a few days ago. So it seems to be that that, that the general public really wants this. I think we really have to make sure that they are sufficiently informed because as you know, with those surveys, it really depends how you ask the question. And, you know, I think sometimes you get the answer you, you want if you know how to ask the question. So I, I don't think that was the case in this survey. I think it was uh, done very well, but I'm just saying, you know, you could easily turn around certain things. And yeah, I'm, I'm also surprised why people are against, you know, animal experimentation and then they still continue eating animals. People are confusing. There's no doubt about it. I could talk about all this stuff for a really long time, but there's really a lot going on right this very moment, as we all know all too well, that has to do with these issues. So let's get to the, I, I just love to have your thoughts on the hot topic and the relationship between what we're doing to animals and pandemics not just this pandemic, but the possibilities for the future. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it is actually very clear now why we shouldn't be eating animals. And nonetheless, it seems to me, it still seems to me like many people haven't made this connection. They haven't made the connection. They don't understand that them eating animals will cause the next pandemic. So I'm a veterinarian by training, and I remember in vet school when we first learned about zoonoses, those diseases that can jump from from an animal species to the human, and vice versa, actually, in some cases. I, I learned about prevention. 
and or at least mitigation. And I remember that I was thinking, yeah, but the real problem is the way we treat and we confine and we exploit animals. You know, this is the real uh, cause of, of zoonosis because if we wouldn't, we wouldn't um, intrude in the animals' natural habitats, you know, in, in case of bats and, and other uh, wild animals. And if we wouldn't confine them by the tens of thousands um, in, in factory farms, we wouldn't have such problems. There are um, studies out there, uh, reviews, actually systematic reviews. Well, actually, I'm thinking of one systematic review where they looked at where did certain zoonoses come from. And almost all of them come from factory farms, um, of course, you know, if, if they're amongst um, domesticated animals. So it is a no-brainer to me that we have to finally wake up and stop eating animals because obviously we don't need them. We don't need them for our survival. We know we, we are perfectly healthy, actually even healthier without eating animal products. Yeah, and it, it, it continues to amaze me how, how blind people can remain to this issue in spite of what's going on. In, in the, all of the many connections, one can, somebody, when I, when I said I was going to inter interview you, somebody asked me about, about the vaccine issue, which is a related issue, not directly about the causes of the pandemic, but perhaps a way to stop it. It seems like these vaccines are being developed really fast. And it seems like animal testing is really slow. So I'm wondering, has animal testing been highlighted in the development of vaccines or or are we getting to a point where we can we can skip some of that step what covid actually showed or this covid pandemic is that things can be accelerated because you know everybody is frantically searching uh, for a cure and a vaccine uh, or treatments treatment options like the normal steps you would take um have been skipped. So, but what, what I have to say, unfortunately, um, still in parallel animal experiments are conducted. COVID should be a chance to illustrate that the non-animal approaches are actually really the better ones. But then on the other hand, you have, um, the regulatory side and regulators are very conservative and they don't want to be responsible, you know, if anything goes wrong. So we still stick to the old way of doing things. You know, we would still test all those vaccines and also the, the, the batches then in animals again. So we are still far away from, from moving away from using animals in vaccine testing, but it, it, it should be more and more possible. And maybe at least we have more discussions now about it. Um, as you might have seen, there are many webinars on COVID-19 and uh, non-animal approaches um, that can be used, for example, also, also organs and chips, for example, with lung tissues and other things. So it is good. I mean, this crisis can at least um, have some positive effect on the uptake of non-animal approaches, but we are still stuck in in our old way of doing things. So I think we need to really yeah, discuss more with regulators what is actually really necessary in terms of animal testing still. And I don't know if you saw that, but um, last year, Wanda Pharmaceuticals tried to get rid of uh, a long-term dog study for, I think it was pesticides they were supposed to be tested in. They took the Food and Drug uh, Administration to court 
about uh, over this issue because they didn't want to do the dog tests. Unfortunately, they lost in court, which is obviously not a good, you know, sign or not a good um, message to to other pharmaceutical companies who might want to challenge the status quo of uh, animal testing. So hope, but I hope overall that uh, this crisis will we will learn something from it, and that we might be able to to you know move away from certain animal tests and. At least we have to scrutinize them more. That's something that's that's happening more and more. But yeah, compared to how much money is invested in new animal experiments, so-called systematic reviews are not conducted enough. You know, so that's that's a big problem. Yeah, no, it definitely does seem that that uh, regulatory issues that are based on potential liability and not necessarily the best science. I mean, you can understand why people want to be very, very cautious before they start giving the entire world a vaccine. <laughs> but the caution is sometimes based more on being able to show afterward that you dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's, even if you kind of know that you, you didn't have to dot those I's and, and experiment on those animals necessarily. It really, really works against innovation. I mean, at the same time that the urgency of the situation works for innovation, the stakes are so high that I imagine it works against innovation. Yes, and it's yeah, it's 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 really a bummer that we don't assess more what's actually really necessary and what's not what is not, and that we can't, you know, move away from from this uh, thought culture that um, we use animals for all kinds of tests that are oftentimes misleading. You know, I mean, it's really telling that the the drug failure rate is so high; it was ninety percent. That just uh, shows that that we are just very different from other animals. Even so, it seems we are, of course, they are our relatives, but um, even even we are just not close enough. Even between individual humans, there are huge differences. Even there, you can see how one individual human reacts very differently to a medication than another one. So, yeah, it's just not a good way of doing it. And yeah, let's hope that we will learn a little bit and uh, move away from this. And yeah, in terms of COVID overall, I really have to say that I'm a little bit angry because it is just so clear what's happening and still people don't see it. It is it is really interesting how people don't make the connection, but then you look at the mainstream media and they are not reporting about this. They are not reporting about the problem. And the next the next zoonoses are already on the way, you know, they are also already in development and they can turn them into epi and pandemics. And one big thing, as I already mentioned, is, is um, the animal um, agricultural industry. And, and that's something that's not discussed much about. I, I actually was talking to veterinarians uh, working for the government um, and I was making this point and they completely dismissed it. And they said, Oh, we have those, we have great biosecurity. And I just thought, wow, you know, you, you don't seem to know the history or anything about zoonoses and, and, and what has happened in the past. You know, even the Spanish flu, um, is thought, thought to have originated actually in the United States. You know, it's not a hundred percent clear. But it one of the ideas is actually that it came from the United States. Yeah, no, I've heard that. Yeah, and specifically related to pig rearing, right? 
Yeah, yeah, and and actually the the Spanish um, flu is an avian uh, virus. The the idea there is that they actually said, you know, because how how do um how do those viruses turn into zoonoses? You know that they can jump uh, to another species. It's because of when you cramp individuals uh, together um, by like many of them under poor conditions. And so that's happening in factory farms, but it also happened with the soldiers in, in the First World War. So actually, what what was the problem there was the war situation and, you know, the soldiers, how they lived in filthy conditions. And when one person was sick, you know, it spread all, uh, between them, um, among them. And so that is thought to be, you know, <laughs> comparable to the situation of uh, animals in factory farms where they are housed by the tens of thousands together and already have very weakened immune systems and, and so on and so forth and, and shed um, and a lot of, you know, whatever pathogen they have in them to just distress. So it is, it is interesting. And also in other, like the swine flu, for example, you know, there was an, an outbreak in 2009 and uh, that is thought to have originated in, in the United States. And they also said it was in Mexico, but it seems like it was in the U.S. first. So it doesn't seem to be sufficient, you know, those biosecurity measures that are taken because, for example, you can't control what flies are doing, you know, and flies can, can um, carry the pathogens uh, very far away you know you can you can clean your your boots as much as you want but you can't uh, control all the the issues around that and so this is something i really hope the general public will finally realize that we just cannot continue keeping animals like this you know because not only they will pay the price or they are paying the price we will also pay the price Together with uh, Dr. Charlotte Plattner and Dr. Eva Meyer, two colleagues, uh, one is a lawyer actually, and the other one is an, a philosopher. Um, we just put yes, Eva Eva Meyer was was just on the podcast uh, just a few weeks ago. I am great. Yeah, maybe she told you something about this already because um, we are planning a webinar series um, exactly on the topic of animals and climate change, but also looking at pandemics and global health. Excellent. Yeah, and that's something that's starting in September and it's going to take place once a month for two hours. And yeah, we have five uh, webinars planned. Wow, that sounds amazing. I'm really looking forward to that. And we've covered a lot. There's a lot more to cover, but I, I do want to change the subject before we before I let you go. Because I promised at the beginning of this conversation that we were going to revisit this question uh, which arose and which first got me interested in your work, which arose for me at this conference at Princeton. The conference was on effective altruism in animals. And you spoke on the fact that, in your opinion, the effective altruism movement just has missed the boat by not focusing more on animals used in the name of science. I found your arguments extremely compelling. I, I had, was not familiar with that idea before that. Can you just recap that argument for us? So why I decided to, to talk about that is, I think the effective altruism movement is doing a lot of good for animals. However, I don't understand why they mostly focus on the numbers of animals, um, you know, that, that are exploited in a, certain area so they seem to mainly focus on uh, farm farmed animals 
and also wild animals. Of course, you can argue that compared to farmed animals, uh, animals uh, in laboratories, uh, they, they, they are not, you know, there are not so many. I mean, there are not exact numbers out there, how many millions are used, because, for example, the U.S. doesn't even really count for the majority, uh, count the majority of the animals they use. They don't count uh, rats, mice, birds and fishes. So we don't really have uh, worldwide numbers, but of course, compared to farmed animals, they are not many. But what I wanted to bring across, why it's still very important to focus on, on this area is, first of all, it's inflicted harm. You know, you, you purposefully inflict harm, for example, to create a disease model, you have to make them sick. I think this is a different level of exploitation because obviously you can also say of course in for farmed animals you should know if you confine them and they cannot even stretch their legs uh, in the gestation crates or something like that this is horrible and this is also uh, purposefully in, inflicted suffering but i think it is still another level if you for example do a surgery to to induce a disease for example you should also take into account the severity of suffering not only the mere number the numbers of animal use and the other thing is effective altruism you know effective altruists not only care for other animals they also care for human animals the way we do science may very well uh, impede um, scientific progress because we use um, animal models that don't translate to the human settings so we we kind of let down patients, you know, patients are waiting for cures and they, they are not getting them because we conduct science in, in the way we did uh, many years ago and we haven't changed according to the evidence. So we should be using the human biology-based methods to really further healthcare, human healthcare. And so I think that aspect that it's not only that there are animals suffering and they are suffering immensely. It's also that we cause human suffering by not addressing this area of animal use. Yeah, the arguments do seem very strong for for why this is this area is just so ripe for for this kind of analysis. And and I would add that I think for a lot of people, the idea that that we need to experiment on animals kind of supports the whole structure just as the idea that we need to eat them. And we're moving away from the, I mean, you know, it's hard to maintain the argument that we need to eat them. People do, but it's hard to maintain that. But there's a very strong argument in most people's mind that we absolutely have to do this. Uh, and and by showing that we don't, I think it, it you know, it's kind of, it kind of takes a crucial brick out of the whole structure that help, upholds this exploitative relationship with animals. So I think it was such an important point that you made. and And I hope that there is more more attention paid to uh, this topic. And uh, I do have to let you, I know I'm taking up your whole day. Before I let you go, I know the book covers a lot that we haven't covered here and people can, can, can read that. But can you just kind of summarize what you think we need to do to, to get there, to just speed up the, the change away from animal experimentation? Yeah. And before that, I would just like to add something on, you know, the, what, why do we, think we need to eat animals? Why do we think we need to experiment on them? This is, I'm sure, something that is discussed a lot in this podcast is, is, is the problem that we are, like most people are speciesists. 
that they just think they are superior to other animals. And that's why it's even justified because obviously among our own species, we wouldn't do things. And, you know, clinical trials are way more, um, there's a different tone in even discussing clinical trials with human participants. And so many things are not possible that obviously are possible with animal experiments. That is one point I wanted to make. And the other one that I want to let everybody know about because it's something we all can do if we want to avoid that animal experiments are conducted is that we focus on prevention on not getting sick in the first place on really preventing um, those diseases that we are struggling with yeah i could i could talk a lot about prevention now but um one big thing of course that is i think not addressed enough is the the problem of pollution of environmental pollution and how that uh, contributes to many diseases we have to ask for better protection from environmental pollution uh, pollutants you know that's really something so important so when i uh, i live in the us and uh, the first thing i got uh, for myself was a reverse osmosis water filter because uh, of the very i think bad drinking water compared to what i'm used to in in, in germany just not even to talk about all the toxicants in there, but just the chlorine in there kills your micro, uh, gut microbiome. You know, it affects your gut microbiome, uh, which is really important for your immune system and so on. There are many things that everybody of us can do. And another thing, of course, is how we eat. Um, and there, I think that's probably something you talk about uh, in your podcast as well. Plant-based nutrition is key um, to, to stay healthy. And animal products are actually um, counterproductive. So there's definitely no argument for eating animals or their products. Those two points I wanted to make um, before I go over to the question, what do we need to do to uh, move away from animal experimentation? So there are five key points I see. Um, I will just touch on them briefly. You can uh, read more about them in, in my chapter in the book. Actually, the, uh, the book is open access, so you don't need to buy it. it. You can just download it for free from the Brill website. So the five points are political engagement. So we really need governments to stand up and really help change this, uh, this research paradigm. You can see that if, um, in the Netherlands, where the government actually decided that they want to phase out certain animal experiments until 2025, and then they want to address other areas in the long run, you need a political leadership that's very important. Then legislative change. I touched on that a little bit before. Regulators are very conservative. They won't, don't want to get in trouble if something goes wrong. If they use archaic tests, they can still say we, we've used those for, for forever, you know, and so you can't get them in trouble for that, that if they don't work. But if you try something new, they might get in trouble. So we, we really need uh, to stand up and ask for legislative change. And some of the animal advocacy charities are working on this issue. And as I said, uh, with Wanda Pharmaceuticals, some of the pharmaceutical companies also decide to step up. Then we need to redeploy funds. And that's a big thing because there is so much money given for biomedical research as life science or research basis basically and just a very small percentage there are no clear numbers but uh, 
there's just a very small percentage given for the development um, of non-animal approaches. So we have to redirect funding, and that's really key for anything. The prevention I already touched on a little bit. I just think that's so important. We can do so much with that. We can really avoid um, so so many things um, by just living healthier. Yeah, in that way, protecting animals. And then education and training is another huge area that we need to address. In my program at Johns Hopkins, I'm, I'm doing that. And it's really important uh, to train the next generation of scientists. And I also saw that there is not, there are not enough training options. It is really difficult still, you know, to find, um, for example, master programs that are fully uh, animal free. And yeah, our summer school um, is something that we just started. Um, it should now happen every second year. And it's a sister organ um, event to the JRC summer school in Europe. But it's just not enough. We need more of, of this to really set the stage for 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 the yeah for the next generation to be able to conduct humane animal free um science this is a, a long list but you have really made me feel like we are on our way and this book as well which is uh, i'll repeat it's, you said you you can find it on the brill website that is very very exciting it's called animal experimentation working towards a paradigm change you kind of make me feel like it, it's possible, which not that many people do. So thank you for that, Katrin. Thank you for all of this hope. In the, in the midst of a lot of despair, there is hope. And, and thanks for joining us today on our hand house. It's really been enlightening. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Marianne. <laughs> if you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety's rising. We've got some doozies today, I have to say. Our first story is from the Beef Daily column by Amanda Radke on Beef Magazine. Build back better our food supply without meat, hard pass. Well, what she's concerned about, shocked, in fact, jarred, in fact, is how activist groups, quote, manipulate people's emotions and prey on their fears during an actual crisis situation where families are being dramatically impacted emotionally, physically, and economically. She's particularly concerned about the, the needs of the poor who are suffering particularly these days. They're struggling to make ends meet, and she just hates the pressure that is being put on them to, uh, to stress them out, to make dietary changes that will impact them in negative ways. She's particularly focused on a recent virtual event called Shift 20, which was posted by the Institute of Food Technologists. And uh, according to her, with a focus on pushing consumers toward plant-based diets, the quote-unquote experts who presented placed a load of guilt, shame, and burden on the poor in our country. Well, that sounds bad, doesn't it? I I'm all for supporting the poor and not making people feel bad and and... Let's see what they actually propose doing here. According to her, 
Groups like Eat the Change and Default Veg are looking at ways to drive the change forward. One way is to encourage convention centers hosting events to default all meals to vegetarian, and attendees would have to request to opt in with a meat option. Well, okay. (laughs) That doesn't seem to be having a huge effect on the poor, uh, who probably aren't going to conventions, and, like, all they would have to do is, if, if they were at a convention, is opt in with a meat option. How the hell does that affect the poor? All right. Also, an, a, a terrible other thing is that they're pushing for greater transparency. And she thinks that's ironic in light of the fake meat marketing strategies, which are 100% confusing and misleading to consumers. 100%. That's a lot. I, that, so far, nobody seems to think they're confusing at all, since they all say vegan all over them. She's all for sustainability efforts to improve the land and create new revenue opportunities. Oh, good. Like, that's really what sustainability is all about, creating new revenue opportunities for producers. But what she is against is mandates, initiatives, or measures. So far, we haven't talked about any mandates, have we? I don't know. Uh, Directed from virtue signaling companies, corporations, organizations, politicians, or celebrities. Apparently, everybody is on our side, according to Amanda, which typically seem to have sinister underlying motives. (laughs) while hurting the very people and planet they came to care about. Did you know that that's what you were doing? She's very concerned about how elitist this all is and that, you know, people are not going to be able to enjoy beef because unless they move forward and ring alarm bells and call out these elitists who use fear, guilt, shame, and pressure. The example she gave is like giving an opt-in for meat at conventions. Fear, guilt, shame, and pressure to change the dietary habits of the food insecure in order to push their plant-based agendas onto the world. Okay, that's apparently what you're doing. I am so confused. All right, here's another one, another doozy. This is from realagriculture.com. Quote, one welfare, the human mental wellness link to animal welfare. Well, that all sounds good, doesn't it? This is uh, by Andrea Jones Bitten. All right, so this is this is what she's concerned about. There's a connection between farmers' own mental wellness, quote, and livestock care is a direct link. In many cases of animal welfare complaints, the root cause is a stressed and or mentally ill farmer. Okay, just think about that. She's she's claiming that the reason that animal welfare is a problem in farming is because the farmers are stressed out. Well, hold the phone. <laughs> like The reason animal welfare is a problem in animal agriculture is because the entire business model of animal agriculture is animal abuse. It doesn't have anything to do with the farmer's mental welfare. But apparently veterinarians, I don't know whether she's talking about all veterinarians, like maybe she found a veterinarian, I don't know. And the livestock industry stakeholders are beginning to have conversations about, quote, one welfare, the concept that farmer welfare and animal welfare are really one and the same. Okay. And you know what the problem is? And the reason that these farmers are not having good mental health is it's because of us. (laughs) These graphic and misleading animal rights campaigns purported to be about animal welfare actually doing more harm than good because of the significant mental toll these attacks have on those caring for livestock. So when there's any uh, revelation or complaint about the way that farmers are treating their animals, apparently the farmers get bad mental health. And then they mistreat their animals even more. So it's all your fault. Get it? 
quote, outside pressure and scrutiny from perhaps well-meaning but ill-informed groups or individuals can be stressful. Trolling or goading on social media can be taxing and infuriating. Then there's the full-on harassment that some farmers have faced from groups where their name and farm location have been shared publicly to make them a target. Apparently, it's all your fault. If you weren't complaining about how badly they were treating their animals, they'd be treating their animals great. Uh, okay. And, you know, of course, her real point is this, quote, what many people don't realize is that livestock producers consider it their duty to keep their animals as healthy as possible, unquote. In the first place, she's not talking about welfare, she's talking about health, which are not always, are sometimes related, but not frequently not always related. But the real point is, is that, as I said before, the entire business model is animal abuse. All right, next. I, I told you we had some doozies today. You Act Now campaign is terribly misguided activism against meat. This is from Feedstuffs. And yeah, they were really upset about this. This, this is that UN uh, campaign called Act Now. And this is by one Dennis Erpelding. And uh, the UN, according to him, totally blew all credibility with its Act Now Twitter post. It was just a Twitter post, but it got them so upset. Regarding meat that says, quote, the meat industry is responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than the world's biggest oil companies. Meat production contributes to the depletion of water resources and drives deforestation. One of the choices on the Act Now website is meat-free meals for things that you can do to help the climate. Well, this got everybody very upset. According to Anne Mottet, a livestock development officer with the Food and Agriculture Organization, Greenhouse gas emissions from transport are higher than those from all livestock in the world. You know, you've heard this before. Like, these numbers are very, you know, it depends on what you're counting and who's counting. But that, this just, there's nothing in here that says that just because, even if this is true, even if transport, depending on what you're counting and depending on what part of the livestock industry you're counting and all of that, which, you know, we can't figure that out. And they rely on the fact that we can't figure it all out. Even if transport is worse, which it may well be, that doesn't mean that livestock is nothing. Just because transportation is worse than your greenhouse gas emissions doesn't let you off scot-free. Of course, the UN did delete, according to this, the English version of the tweet. But unfortunately, they still have meat-free meals as an act now key action option. Oh, my God, how dare they? Unbelievable. Then she goes into this health, or he, it was Dennis, uh, goes into this health argument. Again, worrying about, you know, the poor. We're all so worried about the poor all of a sudden. Globally, it is scientifically recognized that meat provides essential macronutrients and micronutrients that help sustain life and that food animal production helps sustain livelihoods. Well, yeah, if, if, if your livelihood is in food animal production, then, then I guess... That would help sustain your livelihood. If it's not in food animal production, it doesn't. And if you are in food animal production, you could go into plant food production and you would still have a livelihood because people will continue to need food, even if we don't eat animals. But, you know, that's too complicated here. But the essential micronutrients, this article goes on to cite a study that shows that the highest dietary risks are from the high intake of sodium, the low intake of whole grains and the low intake of fruits. Apparently, this is supposed to establish that this argument that meat is, is really good for you is true. I have no idea how. Yes, I'm all for people eating more whole grains and low-intake fruits. This, like, makes no sense whatsoever. 
These people are losing their minds. And that's because their anxieties are rising. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer, and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.